Dotnet Rocks episode 649 with guest Eric Lippert, recorded live Monday, March 14th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and happy National Pie Day. Well, I know it's after Pie Day now, but that's when we are recording this show. Hey, Richard. 314, huh? That's right. Did you know that Albert Einstein was born on Pie Day in 1879? This I did not know. Yeah, isn't that weird? I'm more concerned about the fact that people keep serving cake on Pie Day. (laughs) True. You know what you get when you take the sun and divide its circumference by its diameter? What? Pie in the sky. Nice. Just where we're going, okay. When you take green cheese and divide its circumference by its diameter, what do you get? I don't know. Moon pie. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's all I got, man. That's all you got? You got all you got for me? You know, there's nothing worse than pie puns on pie day. When else would you do them? I don't know. But I, I was tasked with baking an apple pie today because, because apparently that's a tradition in my newfound family. Well, and I'm glad that you're doing pie because there's entirely too much cake. Uh, I'm with you. Richard, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. What do you got? All right. Well, here's what I got. You know, in Windows Phone 7 development, and yes, I got an email from somebody who said, hey, how about a little Better Know Framework love for us uh, folks who aren't doing Silverlight or WPF? Sorry, but... Um, you know, you that's are. sort of where I am right now. But <laughs> I, I will get back to, you know, we've sort of covered a lot of fundamental .NET Framework stuff. Um, so, but if you have, of course, any suggestions for directions for me to go in, just send them to Carl at Franklin's.net. But anyway, I, I, I get this is what you're working on and what you're excited about. Well, you know, and I think that there's a lot of development going on right now in Silverlight. So I think that's, you know, not just me, but I think there's a lot of people that are interested in it. But, of course, there's other things to talk about, too. So uh, anyway, in Windows Phone 7, when you, let's say, browse to a website, let's say that you have a link in your app. Yes. And you create a new web browser task and you navigate to that link, you essentially, your app closes. And when it comes back, when you go back to your application, guess what? It starts over again. Mm -hmm. Starts as if you just ran it for the first time. So in order to deal with that, because apps run one at a time, there's a pattern for preserving your state. And it's called tombstoning. We've talked about this a little bit. But I found a really good how-to article on MSDN Online, How to Preserve and Restore Page State for Windows Phone using the preserve and restore pattern. And it is out at tinyurl.com slash tombstone phone. And uh, you can read all about it. Essentially, you need to hook a couple of override, you need to override a couple of uh, virtual methods mm-hmm. on navigated from and on navigated to. You have to have a Boolean that checks to see whether you're a new page instance or not. It's sort of a... a um, uh, a sort of a strong way to hook the constructor in a way that makes sure that you're running for the first time. 
Good. And then there's a, a state utils class that has a, a preserve state method, and you pass in uh, the the state information, and you can you essentially have to build out a little class to do it. But it's really well defined and easy to do. So there you go. Tinyurl.com slash tombstone phone. Know it, learn it, love it. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Um, got a good one here for you from Mike Simpson. Hi, guys. I just listened to your interview with Udi Dehan on CQRS. Yeah. Great stuff. I haven't had the opportunity to work with CQRS myself, but some of my coworkers are using it on a large project for another client, and I've had some discussions with them about it. With regard to eventual consistency, it struck me that on a micro scale, traditional database transactions use the same principle as CQRS in that the act of reading is kept isolated from the act of writing. Databases use locks to postpone the readability of the new data until a transaction is finished. This is absolutely correct unless you change it. Uh, CQRS does it by physically separating the readable data from the writable data and only updating the readable data after the fact, which is really a scaling trick. The only difference seems to be the time scale. Both CQRS and a database transaction ensure that whenever you read the data, it's consistent. The only question is how up-to-date it is. Mm. A transaction is about as short as you can get while keeping the readable data consistent. CQRS, caching, and so on allow the data to fall further behind, which is where CQRS's idea of exposing the freshness, in quotes, of the data of, to the user comes into play. But the underlying principle is the same. Uh-huh. Best regards, Mike Simpson. And he's from Alpharetta, Georgia, and says, looking forward to seeing you guys at TechEd Atlanta. We'll be there. We will be there. Uh, yeah. Mike, I can't disagree with you, man. This was a brilliant a brilliant thing. I'm a big database transaction guy. It's just that transactions need to be super short, and real world is not. And so uh, I was really excited to see what Udi was talking about uh, in terms of just exposing those things and uh, keeping transactional consistency going on. We've been violating transactional consistency for a long time with different caching techniques and so forth, all in the name of performance. Mm. Uh, and you just got to acknowledge the trade-off. And that's really what I think CQRS does is completely acknowledge the trade-off that you're making there. So a mug to you, sir. And if you would like a mug, send us an email or write a comment on our fancy new website at donetrocks.com. The email address is donetrocks at franklins.net. And just in case you didn't hear that, the preferred way that we'd like to communicate with our listeners is through the comments engine on .netrocks.com. Just leave us a comment, and then everybody can see it and yeah. comment on it. Yeah. Well, Richard, I'm very excited today because our guest is none other than Eric Lippert. The Eric Lippert. The Eric Lippert, the man who lets you see inside his brain. Nice. More on that in a minute. Eric is a developer on the C-Sharp compiler development team. In his decade and a half at Microsoft, he's also worked on Visual Basic, VBScript, JScript, Visual Studio Tools for Office, and other developer tools. He writes a blog mostly about his fabulous adventures in programming language design and occasionally about piano tuning, relationship advice, or whatever else is on his mind. <laughs> Welcome, Eric. It's good to be here. Piano tuning, man. Talk about a pie, uh, uh, you know, a, a pie day topic. I mean, we won't talk about that, but I know a little bit about piano tuning because I've seen Al Laporte, who's my piano tuner, do his thing with his oscilloscope, and and I've even seen people that have these, you know, comp remember the iPack, the Compact iPack, 
Got a little. I found I found one in my closet while I was cleaning out my closet just the other day. Yeah, and and there's like a little app that you can put on the iPad and just put the thing in the middle of the piano and watch the the oscilloscope do its thing. That's awesome. The original PDA still has a use. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I booted mine up. It worked just fine. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now you know this is a very special Pi Day. Now why is that? Because it's three fourteen. Fifteen. Oh, wait a minute. Is it? No, no, it's not. No, never mind. We've got a couple <laughs> years to go yet. <laughs> it's three fourteen eleven. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> Should we scratch that? I think we let that one go. <laughs> yeah, pie, turns out this pie day not that special. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what is up with this photo of the inside of your head? Oh, well, um, many years ago, um, uh, a housemate of mine, a young woman I was renting a room to, uh, was dating a, a guy who was trained to, re- training to be a radiologist. Uh-huh. And one day he emailed me and said, would you like a photograph taken of the inside of your head? I need to practice. And I was like, yes, yes, I would like a photograph taken of the inside of my head. Is this really something an amateur should do? <laughs> Well, uh, he was a student radiologist. Okay. You know, he, he did seem to understand how the machine worked. So it's not um, like you glowed the next day or anything? No, no, no. It was fine. Although my, uh, you know, the, the spin on my neutrons did feel a little bit weird for a couple of hours afterwards. <laughs> my mom told me never to talk about my neutron spinning. Right. <laughs> yeah. Get hairy palms that way. So um, it looks like a, one of those, you know... Like if you've been to the bodies exhibit where they slice people like in half and you can see like the the small slice, it looks like that. How on earth did they do that? Uh, well, the uh, the mathematics of uh, a CAT scan are quite quite tricky. Um, but basically, what they do is they apply enormous magnetic fields um, to to your body, right? Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the water in your body, uh, the, the neutrons change their spin, and uh, when the magnetic field uh, is varied slightly, then those, uh, then those neutrons can be made to um, emit photons. And by detecting the photons, you can do some pretty complicated math and figure out what the uh, interior structure um, wow. of, the, uh, of the thing that was in the chamber looks like. And... Uh, Wow. Yeah, I mean, you can do you can do slices in uh, any uh, in any axis you want, basically. And this was this was a cat. This wasn't an MRI. That was um, no, that was an, an, an MRI. The uh, the picture I sent you guys. Uh, okay. Yeah. Pretty yeah. wild. It we're living in a science fiction novel, you know. Mm-hmm. I know it's pretty amazing. It is pretty strange, and, and now they're doing these things real time, so I can actually watch you, or you know articulate or think and uh, right. c- continuous images. So can you see any detriment that working on Visual Basic has made to your brain? Can, <laughs> can that be mapped out anywhere? You, you know, that image is about 10 years old. I'm, I imagine that my brain does look somewhat different now after, <laughs> uh, after having worked on uh, Visual Basic and C Sharp for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's nothing abnormal or, or enlarged in any area about your brain other than, you know, normal humans. Uh, there didn't appear to be. I was just happy to find out that I actually had one. Yes, uh, proof. Good. You got proof. A lot of folks don't have proof. That's you true. know, you, you take these things on faith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, man, you guys have been putting out some great stuff in the C-sharp uh, 
in the C-sharp language lately. Well, thank Fabi- you. I mean, I can't, I can't write a program without Link now. I know, I know. It, uh, it, we, we got some skepticism at first. Uh, the, the reaction to it was either, uh, I will never use that until, and I will tell my coworkers to never use it, and my God, I needed this three years ago. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, I remember listening to the very first uh, talks about Link and thinking, you know, are we encouraging people to, like, query databases and pull you know, all sorts of data into memory and then sort it and look through it in memory. But that's really not what it's all about. And it never really implied that you should do that. There's so many little collections of data that you have where you just want to loop through and find something. And it's just so easy to do with, with a statement. Right. And what's great about it is that the technique that you use to search an XML document or an array or a database or uh, a network of objects or whatever, right? The, the code looks the same no matter what the kind of thing you are sorting or searching or filtering or whatever looks like. Uh, the, the fact that there's that sort of abstraction is, I think, what's really powerful about Link. You, yeah. you, learn, how to do the, um, you learn how to do the syntax of it. And then the semantics follows very naturally from that. Well, it wasn't the database thing that mattered to me, being a database guy. It was XML. Mm. Oh, man. You know, it was, yeah, please save me from XSLT, please. Yeah. Uh, I I don't write XML without link. Yeah. Yeah, we get that feedback a lot. And as a compiler guy, you know, as somebody who is constantly writing little algorithms to analyze code... I love writing up little prototypes in Link because I can write up queries that are like, for every type in this collection of types, filter out the ones that are not public, and blah, right. blah, 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 blah. And it, it makes the, uh, it turns code that used to be a lot of you know, loops and building up hash sets and collections and whatnot into code that is just a query and then fetch its results, mm. which is how I prefer to think about um, you know, code yeah. analysis. And it really took the languages to a new place. I mean, there. When you think about languages that are that are specialized for doing things, there are languages that are specialized for sets and dealing with sets of data. And uh, you know, C sharp and VBNet have always been that general purpose language that tries to do a little of everything and do it right. So, in 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 that respect, um, the dynamic aspects of C sharp and VB.net. We just did a, a nice talk with uh, Bill Wagner on DNR TV about mm-hmm. the, the dynamic type. And what was interesting is he wasn't out there saying, you should use this all the time. He was saying there are certain things that you can use it for that you couldn't do otherwise. And, you know, otherwise, if, if you don't know you need it, don't use it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice from uh, from Bill, and he was uh, just in town at the MVP summit. We had uh, we had lunch while he was uh, here and had a very enjoyable talk about that and and other subjects. Yeah, we don't we don't intend uh, C sharp four to be you know what people think of as a, a dynamic language. You, know, you think right. of a language like JScript or you know any of these other uh, you know, Ruby, any mm-hmm. of these other dynamic languages. Uh, it's not our intention at all to make C Sharp a dynamically typed language. We like static typing. We like the safety that mm-hmm. um, that the compiler gives you by checking your type or checking your program for for type errors early. Mm-hmm. However, it is certainly the case that people write C Sharp programs that must 
uh, interoperate with uh, object models that were written for for dynamic languages or in dynamic languages. People do um, people do programming that is in a sense, not type-safe, because they're using reflection and they're relying on the reflection layer to throw exceptions at runtime, mm-hmm. and so on. And people who are doing that, uh, we want this dynamic feature in C-Sharp 4 to, to make their lives easier, to make their code look more like the, again, to make it look more like the semantics of the code rather than this terrible mechanism that you have to do with, uh, with reflection. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, you sort of implied that the only reason you'd use the dynamic features of C-sharp is because you're working with another dynamic language. So if we crushed all dynamic languages, this wouldn't be necessary? Well, sure, <laughs> but we love dynamic languages. Dynamic languages I'm just thinking are, there's certain ways of expressing yourself that are better expressed in dynamic languages, too. I, I love your logic there, Richard. Let's you like crush that? dynamic languages. kill them all. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, something that I have always admired about the design of, uh, of .NET, of the, the .NET philosophy, is that it is a multi-language philosophy. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, big, it's a big tent platform. And we can fit in languages that are very statically typed, like C-sharp, or um, languages that are uh, statically typed but implicitly typed, like F-sharp, uh, or languages like VB that are mostly statically typed but have a strong dynamic component to them, or languages that are entirely dynamic. You know, all of these, all of these different dials that you can turn on language design, we want to fit them into, the, into this platform. Well, and it's stunning to me. I mean, I felt like C-Sharp and VB.net were rather close together. And so it didn't surprise me. They fit under the tent. But it seemed like F-Sharp and Iron Python were opposite directions. And the fact that they both survived in the space was, was remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and they're both, they're both great languages. I, I was as surprised as anyone that, uh, that F-Sharp has been promoted to be, you know, in Visual Studio and, uh, you know, having its own project system and, and whatnot. It's, it's maybe not entirely being treated as a, a first-class citizen in that I don't think you will see uh, every code sample that Microsoft produces being produced in both C-sharp and F-sharp, for example, right? But it's certainly being promoted as a, you know, mainstream, useful programming language, uh, and not just a, a research curiosity. Uh, and we have a lot of real customers who are using it and using it extremely effectively. Uh, and it's a great language. I, uh, I really want to learn a lot more about it because we have a lot we can learn from it. Do you see it as a general purpose language, though? Uh, I see it as... Um, I, I don't see it as a domain-specific language. Right. Um, you know, I don't think that it is just for financial computations or... Uh, scientific computations. That said, uh, most of the people who are using it in industry are using it for financial or scientific computations. Right. Um, but it's it's designed to be a, a general purpose functional language. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And, of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And, hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. 
Can you tell us anything uh, that we should be looking for in the next version of Visual Basic? We talked to Anders a little bit, uh, and we know that there's some good stuff coming up in C Sharp. And he he also mentioned it in for for VB, um, access to the compiler. Is this what Rosalind is all about? Uh, that's correct. So there's there's two main uh, fronts for the the evolution of C sharp and VB right now that we've talked about publicly. Um, so first off, uh, I want to re-emphasize something that we have uh, said quite a lot in the last couple of years, which is that uh, we want to co-evolve uh, C sharp and VB. Uh, something that we've done in the past is try to have a sort of a brand differential and say, well, just as you know, there's a, a market segment for Tide detergent and there's a market segment for Cheer detergent, there's a market segment for C-sharp programmers and there's a market segment for VB programmers. Um, and that strongly influenced the sorts of features we would add to each language. Uh, we've decided that, that essentially the, the difference between C-sharp and VB ought to be what people are more comfortable with uh, and not, oh, I need to do something involving uh, iterator blocks, and therefore I'm going to have to use C-sharp because VB doesn't support that feature. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain features that will probably never be in VB. You know, it seems unlikely that pointers will ever be in VB. Right. Uh, it seems unlikely that XML literals will ever be in C-sharp. Uh, but as far as uh, sort of big new features like the uh, asynchrony work that we're doing, um, they will be added to both C-Sharp and VB. And the, the C-Sharp and VB teams are actually the same team now. Right. Um, I work mostly on C-Sharp, and I have uh, coworkers who work mostly on VB. But we all attend the same meetings, and we all design our compilers the same way and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I was saying, there's two major fronts. Uh, one is the, uh, the asynchrony work that we're adding to the next version of the language. And then uh, looking even farther ahead than that, uh, we have a project codenamed Roslyn, where we are re-architecting the C-sharp and VB compilers so that we can expose their uh, internal analysis engines um, as object models that you can program against. Anders talked about this a little bit in terms of being able to generate code and compile it on the fly and that kind of stuff. Give us a real scenario where that might be... uh where that could really, really help you? Uh, there are any number of, of scenarios where you might want to do rich analysis, uh, programmatic analysis of code. Um, generating fresh code on the fly is, is just one of them. And we see right, right now there are all kinds of situations where people want to generate, uh, generate code on the fly. Like Link is a prime example of that. Mm. Right? You, have, uh, you have an expression tree, and at runtime, you need to generate some kind of code that uh, will then turn that uh, that query expression into something that can be executed, and, th- and that might be turning it in, turning it into SQL. It could be turning it into C sharp and then compiling it. It could be turning it into VB. Uh, it could be spitting out raw IL. And the the tools that we have uh, at people's disposal right now are not that great at. That kind of uh, that kind of code manipulation. They're they're acceptable, but they could expose the full richness of of both languages um, in a nicer way. Mm. But but the the runtime code generation is is just just one example. You know, you could also imagine 
you want to develop a domain-specific language, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you want to have snippets of C-sharp or VB expressions embedded in that domain-specific oh, language. Oh, okay, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, HTML is a good example of that. Right. Well, simple things like uh, conditional branching, that kind of thing. For example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or uh, expression evaluation, where yeah. uh, you've obtained an expression or a query or something from a user, and you would like to have that in your domain-specific language and, and evaluate it, but you don't want to go to all the trouble of writing your own C-sharp parser or your own VB parser. Well, this, this really, really is exciting to me. I mean, I had never considered that with a DSL. Yeah. Yeah, there are a number of different DSL scenarios we are exploring. Um, and... Uh, I want to emphasize that this is all very future forward looking we're not announcing dates we're not announcing specific feature sets. This is all very blue sky you know for entertainment purposes only musing um, but you, you think about all of the different domain specific language scenarios there are you know there are some times when you have a a document that is a a program written in a domain specific language and it has uh, code embedded in it that is written in some other language, right? So you have HTML and you have code embedded in it that's written in JScript, mm. right? And the HTML is a domain-specific language. It is specific to the domain of rendering web web pages. There are also scenarios where you have the opposite. You have a, a program that's primarily written in C Sharp, and then you have some hunk of some domain-specific language in the middle of it, right? And Link is an example of that. Link is essentially a domain-specific language for querying data sets right. that we've embedded into the middle of the C-sharp language. And now, should we have some metaprogramming scenario where people can come up with their own Link-like extensions to the language? I, I don't know. That might, that might be too fragmentary. It might, uh, it might encourage people to write C-sharp programs that are sort of, you know, write once, read never, uh, where mm-hmm. you, you, can't, uh, you can't understand, um, you know, somebody sends you a C-sharp program and you can't understand it because they've used their proprietary extensions. Maybe that's a good idea, maybe it isn't, but it's, it's the kind of thing that we are, we are looking at when we consider uh, DSL scenarios. Well, it's interesting to me because I actually am writing one, and um, I ran into this, you know, that the, the whole... Um, plumbing around. I just wanted to do some simple if, you know, conditional stuff. You don't want to go crazy with this, with, you know, with uh, the language, because you want it to be easy enough for mere mortals to use. But, but you know, just simply doing that kind of thing, implementing the parser code to look at an if and to handle what happens with that. I mean, that's stuff that I would love to just shirk off to the VB or C Sharp compiler. Yeah, right. no, that that I mean when you said that now the light the light bulb just went off. So Yeah, and some of that stuff is um, you know, quite straightforward and it's just a pain to make people do it themselves and some of it is quite tricky analysis either on the uh syntactic side or the semantic analysis side. Mm. And we would like to make those kinds of jobs easier for people. We look around just Microsoft at the number of teams at Microsoft that have written their own C-sharp parsers is crazy um, because either they have, some, they have some little window where they need to type in some code and they would like to get basic syntax coloring or IntelliSense or they're writing code that transforms C-sharp into some other language or whatever. There are, there are dozens of little C-sharp parsers just hanging around this company, and I'm sure there are hundreds more out in the wild. And it would be nice if we could just 
give you one, right? We have a you know full, fully featured, error recovering, uh, correct C sharp parser, and the general public can't use it because there's no publicly accessible interface to it, and we would like to change that. That's still, you know, you say it so easily, but it, that doesn't sound easy. <laughs> the, what doesn't sound easy? The, sound to to create compiler as a service. Oh no, it's it's not going to be easy to create the compiler as a service. We are doing major rearchitecture to the compiler, uh, to both compilers, to the C sharp and VB compilers, in order to make this work, um, because the the interfaces and the classes and whatnot that were in the existing compilers were not consistent with each other, and they were certainly not designed for public consumption. Right. The, um, the IDE uses parts of our parsers and semantic analyzers, and you know, so they, they have knowledge of the, the secret internal details. Um, but the amount of code that uh, the special purpose interface code between the compiler and the IDE is complicated in the extreme, and we would like to find a way to simplify that. Uh, so, for example, right, you might imagine that you want to write uh, your own code analyzer that does a refactoring uh, or does something like what FXCOP does. You want to write code that looks for a, uh, a pattern that is suboptimal and, and tells, the, tells the user, oh, here's a better way to do that, or, or whatever, something that involves deep both syntactic and semantic analysis of a, of a program. Uh, right now, the IDE has to do that. You know, you take a refactoring like extract method, for example. Uh, extract method, I mean, looks straightforward. It just takes the text and it, and it plugs it into a method. Um, but it does a lot more than that. It needs to figure out, okay, um, am I, in fact, looking at a selection that is complete statements, or am I looking at just an expression? Does the, uh, do the expressions in here consume any local variables? Do they consume any local constants? Do they mutate those local variables? Do the parameters need to be ref or out? Should the new method return a value? What value should it return, et cetera? You know, all of these different things. Um, and the, the interfaces between the compiler and the IDE that tell the IDE, oh, you're taking uh, five statements and those statements uh, write to this variable and they read from this variable. And uh, so here's the refness and outness that you need to apply to the, uh, the parameters. That's quite tricky code. And it would be nice if we could come up with some, uh, some interface to that code that could be consumed by mortals um, in the pursuit of them making similar refactorings or code analysis. Okay, my head hurts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my head hurts too. I, I have to deal with this every day, and the meetings are uh, contentious. You know, we have a lot of disagreements about what's the right way to, to architect these sorts of things. It's not, uh, it's not like this is a solved problem that we can just go to existing um, academic research and say, oh, well, everybody knows how to open up the internals of a compiler to the public and, uh, and let them use it effectively. That dark spot uh, in the middle of your brain, that's where this is coming from, isn't it? That's, that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Microsoft's always been very good about handing us a gun powerful enough to shoot our foot off with. It's sure. just this one really feels like a big gun. It it certainly <laughs> will be. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, the that's not the analogy I've been using. Uh, the analogy I've been using is that this is the enough rope object model. <laughs> <laughs> 
we are going to try to make it as uh, as painless as we possibly can, even though it will be a complicated object model. Well, it doesn't uh, hit until, hurt until you hit the end of the rope, right? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not the fall that kills you; it's the sharp sudden shock at the, at the end. end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but don't yeah. worry; that passes quickly. Right. <laughs> Well, there. I think there are a few listeners out there who are interested in you know the whole compiler stuff and how it works. But I think more people just want to know what what other scenarios can I use this for? Like, you know, maybe we're not as um, forward thinking as some other people, or be able to visualize what problems can I solve once I have this. I mean, the DSL is a great example of that, and writing code on the fly is a great example of that. But um, uh, give us some other scenarios. The the scenario that I think is really the compelling one for the, the whole compiler-as-a-service uh, effort is not any specific... Um, not any specific task that a given end user is going to is going to use compiler-as-a-service to solve. It's rather the aggregate effect on the community. What I would really like to see is some kind of system whereby people could, uh, you know, third parties, just ordinary people could say, hey, I'm going to use this, this API to develop a little code refactoring. I'm going to publish it as a, as a plug-in to Visual Studio, and uh, the community can, uh, can you know, install this on their machines, and they can vote on whether this is, whether this is useful or not useful, um, and really take advantage of the power of our very dedicated, very smart community of professional developers. You know, these our, our customers are professional developers, and they like to use code to solve problems. And they should right. be able to share that code with their uh, with their coworkers and and with their their colleagues um, across the uh, across the industry. Um, that that's where I think this really this really shines. Is it is opening up a whole new set of tools that are available to people so that we don't have to, you know, we in, in right. this hallway, the, the hallway that I'm sitting in right now, do not have to be the only arbiters of, right. well, what's a refactoring that's worth writing? Yeah. You want people to use their imaginations and come up with new brilliant solutions. Right. Yeah, and that, that, makes the, that makes the whole industry better. And there, there are a lot of features like that. You know, uh, we added covariance and contravariance to uh, to C sharp recently, and I, you know that's that was my favorite feature, uh, partially because uh, it was the only one I actually implemented myself, mm-hmm. uh, and partially because you know I'm kind of a type system geek, but we don't ever expect you know sort of mainstream line of business developers to say, oh, I'm going to sit down and write myself a contravariant interface right now. Rather, we or spell that, it for that matter. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> or, or even even understand precisely what. Is the the what does variance mean in contravariance? Like, what yeah. is the thing that is varying? Now, a lot of people don't get that because they don't have a background in category theory, and why would they? Right? They're professional programmers; they're not mathematicians. Right. Um, but we do expect that people will take advantage of those features every day. You know, every time that they go and pass uh, something that can compare two animals to some code that expects something that can compare two giraffes, and it just works without them having to think. Oh well, wait. I need to create a wrapper around this thing. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those are the those are the kinds of advantages we see for for features like that. Mm-hmm. You know that that things just work the way you expect them to, and that 
the people who are designing um, who are designing libraries or or who are designing tools can take advantage of these features that other people uh, can then derive benefit from. That's awesome. So are there are a lot of people around Microsoft salivating over getting to use this for their particular projects. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we um, we have an internal mailing list, and uh, and people are definitely looking forward to not having to maintain their own C sharp compilers anymore. Right um, now, again, I emphasize oh, we have not announced a date for this. This is very long lead work. Right. Um, we are we are just in the process of rearchitecting the compilers now. You know, I'm busy typing in code every day, so um, it will be a while yet. Uh, but I'm really excited about this. You know, this is this is the kind of thing that I dreamed of doing when I was in college, and uh, and now I'm doing it. So that's great. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4, or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only 6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. What are some of the frontiers of software that you think um, have yet to be completely solved or explored that you are looking forward to doing so in the next 10 or 20 years? Well, there's, there's stuff that I am personally looking forward to working on, and then there's stuff that I am looking forward to other people solving for me that I can then take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I got myself a Connect the other day, right? and I am just blown away at how many hard technical problems oh, that yeah. team had to solve. And it was a bunch of teams all working together. Yeah. Uh, you know, the problems in gesture recognition and voice recognition and uh, you know low light recognition of faces and yeah. all, all of these all of these different uh, different problems and to then you know make that available you know at first to game programmers but i you know i am sure that someday uh, devices like that will be available to just you know mainstream programmers that that you know when you open up your laptop and that little camera you know that's that's in every laptop will will be functioning as a gesture recognizer yeah. know, there there are tons and tons of things we can we can do with uh, with that kind of user interface that we're just beginning to explore and i'm really looking forward to to seeing how people solve those problems. And there are still hard problems in that space. You know, in, uh, but what, what I really love about that technology is that for the first time, we are coming up with user interfaces that adapt themselves to people rather than people adapting themselves to the, to the interface. Right. Uh, and that's, that's very powerful, and I, I want to see that uh, continued even more. You know, so somebody once told me that the uh, the computers they liked to use best were the computers they didn't know existed. Right, mm-hmm. the computers in their car. Right? Yep. They, there is no user interface to to the fourteen computers that are in my car. Um, well, there is, and, but you don't notice it. Exactly. You know, I mean, it, this is the the one of my favorite lines from a friend of mine who's deeply immersed in the artificial intelligence work. Is the problem with artificial intelligence is the moment we get it working in any respect. It isn't artificial intelligence anymore. It's just software. Right. And we have tons and tons of it now. All kinds of problems are solved, but they no longer fall under his category anymore. Right. People used to say that 
that artificial intelligence was something like playing chess, right? That no computer could be called intelligent until it could do the same sort of reasoning that would lead, uh, you know, a human to, to play good chess. Well, chess is now a solved problem. You know? yep. uh, there are now computers that can beat essentially everybody in the world at chess. And they do it in a way that is only pseudo-intelligent. Like, you can't really look at that thing and say, this is a general-purpose intelligence. No, this is a, this is a specialized chess-solving machine. Right? Um, I did not watch any of uh, Jeopardy, where they had the, uh, the Watson robot. Yeah, right. Um, but again, it was, though that's a much, much more like uh, you know, what we would think of as human intelligence having to do with language processing. Again, it just shows that we keep on moving the bar, right? Um, Have you always been interested in, uh, in artificial intelligence in general? Uh, I've always been interested in artificial intelligence as sort of a an educated layperson. I have mm-hmm. never investigated it um, professionally, mm-hmm. uh, except as just you know writing little uh, theorem provers or Sudoku solvers or or whatever. Um, I was really turned on as a kid by a computer that I saw in a, the Boston Children's Museum. And this, okay, so I was born in 67, so do the math. I was probably 10 or 13, so in the, in the 70s sometime, in the late 70s, I was uh, in, 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 so they were just green screen computers, and this thing wanted to play Hangman, and it said, enter your name. And so I put in, you know, Carl, and it said, hey, Carl, how are you, Carl? Carl, I want to play a game. And I thought that was amazing, just the whole idea. And it's so silly now, but I was completely blown away. I thought there was a person on the sure. other side typing to me. That's what I thought, 10 years old. And so that whole artificial intelligence thing was really, really cool to me. And I, I was big into Eliza. You remember that thing? Oh, Eliza was a, a program that fooled a lot of people into thinking that it was deeply intelligent. When and it was written it was. as a goof. It was written yeah. to show, hey, this is not intelligence. This is an algorithm. Yeah. Right. And but essentially it was a Rogerian psychotherapist who answered every question you gave it with another question that used uh, word, keywords in your sentence right. to sort of change the, the direction of the conversation. Right. Um, Tell me more about your mother. Yeah. When you say something like, yeah, I hate my mother or whatever, you know, do you, do you how do you feel towards the rest of your family? You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, so I've always been really interested in that. And I guess we were talking with. Uh, Charles Petzold about Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. What was it last year, Richard? Mm-hmm. So the Turing test was a is a test that this guy came up with to determine whether or not a machine was intelligent. I can't remember right. what and it was. And essentially, could could a machine um, fool a a human into uh, into believing that that it was intelligent? In that the machine could not be distinguished from. Uh, communication with a with a real person. Um, now there are some there's some argument as to whether the Turing test actually is a test of intelligence, because mm. on the face of it, it seems to be a a, a test of uh, ability to overcome other humans' um, gullibility. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it could be a test of ability to deceive. Right. Exactly, it's all perception. Yeah, uh, but I think that the Turing test is a reasonable. You know, first approximation test for uh, for intelligence, um, but I, I suspect that when we actually do get machines that could reasonably just be described as uh, intelligent the way that humans are intelligent, 
we may not immediately recognize that that's what they are. It may be mm-hmm. such a different kind of intelligence that it's that it's hard to say um, one way or the other whether uh, whether there's you know some there there or whether it's just uh, a uh, meaningless manipulation of, uh, of formal symbols. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. a it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, and it's a confusing beast. Exactly that. That we keep setting the benchmark like chess and Jeopardy, and then beating it, and not right. beating it in the way that anyone intended. Right. Yeah, because you know, human intelligence did not evolve in order to solve chess problems. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of an epiphenomenon. Um, human intelligence, uh, you know, in the ability to say recognize figures in a scene. Uh, did evolve for for good reasons. You know, it is very handy to be able to find the red berries and the green bushes, and it is very handy to be able to tell whether there's a leopard in that bush. And uh, some of those tasks are, you know, computers can perform quite well, and some of them they're still pretty bad at. Um, so I, I'm also looking forward to seeing what's uh, what's coming up in uh, in machine vision because that that keeps on improving as well. Um, you asked, uh, you know, what what stuff I'm I'm excited about, um, and what what sort of big problems there are in the programming languages space. So, um, you know, there's that the the big one, you know, which is you know, human machine interaction and artificial intelligence and whatnot. Um, on a more personal scale, I'm also really looking forward to working on problems that are more. Uh, in line with what real developers face every day, you know, problems like how to deal with asynchrony and concurrency, yeah. um, how to uh, deal with uh, interoperations between multiple languages, how to manage complexity of large code bases, stuff like that. So, Where does parallelism fall in your purview these days? I am not myself an expert on parallelism or asynchrony or concurrency, uh, and there are subtle differences between between those three things, and they're, they're uh-huh. often conflated. Uh, I am very fortunate in that I work uh, with people like uh, yeah, my colleague Lucian, who's on the, the Visual, Basics, Visual Basic team, or... Um, uh, Stephen Taub, who's on the uh, the Parallel Frameworks team, these guys have have you know a deep knowledge of uh, issues in parallelism and concurrency and whatnot, um, and they are sort of the uh, the masterminds behind the the features we have uh, coming out in uh, in C Sharp and VB to uh, to help developers tame some of this complexity. Um, Parallelism is incredibly important, and it is going to become more important. Um, and asynchrony is incredibly important, and it's going to become more important uh, as well. You know, parallelism is this idea of I have a bunch of work that I need to do, and I'm going to use the divide and conquer technique. I'm going to farm it out to a bunch of different uh, processors that can somehow solve this problem in parallel, and then I'm going to take all of their answers uh, and. Uh, figure out how to work those answers into the into the final answer that I'm seeking. Right? Uh, asynchrony is this related idea of I have some unit of work that I need to perform, and the result of that computation is going to be available later. And I would like to be doing something in the meanwhile. Um, so clearly, they're they're deeply related, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know when you are when you're farming work out to parallel processors, then you are 
you're working asynchronously and you would like to be able to keep on doing work while you're waiting for um, waiting for that that farm of processors to to start serving up results to you uh, when you you have this battle of the principal thread and things get even weirder when we start moving away from that idea sure sure when, there's one boss thread spawning off everything else so what happens when it doesn't necessarily work like that that is a reasonable model for UI-based scenarios where there's sort of the, the main thread and it's the one that's updating the user interface and taking in uh, information from the user and displaying information to the user. And then maybe there are workers in the background that are doing the, the heavy lifting of the, the computations. Uh, or maybe there are workers in the background that are doing whatever work it takes to send this result to that server and get a, uh, send this query to that server and get a result back or whatever, right? Um, but there are scenarios where it's there's not a main UI thread that is driving the show and a bunch of bunch of workers behind the scenes. Um, you know, there are um, there are plenty of examples of asynchronous code where there is only one thread, uh, and a, a lot of people think that asynchrony means means multi-threading, and I, it, it does not necessarily right, mean multi-threading. Right. Uh, an, an example I sometimes give is you can imagine uh, imagine a game. Uh, imagine writing the logic for a game where you, 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 press, you press the button and then the siren goes off and then five seconds later the door opens and then ten seconds after that the door closes and, and so on. You know, a typical scenario in a game. You would kind of want to write the code very linearly like that to say, you know, okay, when the button is pressed, um, cue the siren, right? And the siren goes off, right? And then await five seconds, and then, uh, you know, after you've waited for five seconds, turn the siren off and open the door, and, and so on. And you'd like to write this code kind of, you know, top to bottom, linearly, but the execution of the code doesn't happen in that order, right? Because while you're waiting those five seconds uh, for, the, uh, for the door to open and the siren to stop, there could be other things going on. There could be other tasks that were queued up to happen in that, in that interval, and you want to run those. There's no reason why all of that stuff needs to be running on background threads. It could all be running on the same thread as long as every unit of work is small enough. Yeah, as long as nothing is blocking. And as long as nothing is blocking, right? That, that is the key. Um, so the, the, the context of this is that in, uh, we've released a, a community technology preview for a future version of C-Sharp and VB that has keywords async and await in them that do this asynchronous uh, waiting. So, yeah. that, so that when you say, oh, I have this task and I'd like it to be performed either on another thread or on another machine or you know, via the task parallel library or whatever, um, that all of the coordination of how am I going to figure out how to do work while I'm waiting for this thing to come back is taken care of for you by the compiler so that you don't have to write that logic yourself. Because that logic is complicated and it, is, it makes the code hard to read. Well, and, and fundamentally, it's still plumbing. Yeah, absolutely. It is just boring plumbing. And, mm -hmm. But you, you know, get back to the core concept here, which is I want you to do this work and... Let me know when you're done, and otherwise, don't bother me. The, exactly. The, you know, the, the, it's this whole don't block me. Right. Yeah, and that don't block me scenario is tremendously important, um, particularly for, for user interfaces where you want to um, you know, keep on refreshing the UI, but it's important in other scenarios as well. You, know, you think about uh, server scenarios where um, 
you want to continue doing uh, other calculations to figure out how to you know, what data is going to be served up in this page, um, and uh, you don't necessarily want to spawn off dozens and dozens of threads to do that work. It would right. be nice to break up the work into small chunks and do them asynchronously as the information you need becomes available. Yeah, but I still think thread's a concept that you know has a lot of implication in it. And for the most part, that isn't important. It's, here's a whole bunch of work, do it in a way that is not blocking. And I really don't care how you go about it, whether exactly. you spin it up as yeah. threads or shove it to other machines, or that's all irrelevant. Right. Threads, threads are, are just a mechanism. They're a right. mechanism for implementing concurrency. Um, and right now, we, we provide people the ability to use that mechanism, and the code they write looks like code that's manipulating a mechanism rather than looking like code that is um, programmatically manipulating business concepts, which is kind of right. where we want that to be. You know, we want to say, spawn off this task, right? The task is... You know, well, like the example I just said, the task is run this siren for five seconds, right? In right. in my game, or the the task is go fetch this movie from that server, right? Let me know when you're when you're done, right? Uh, so that I can start playing it, yeah, and and so on, right? And why should why should people need to understand you know that there are I/O completion threads and thread pools and blah 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 when the when the business logic that they want to write is fetch the movie and start it playing when it's available, yeah, and don't block my UI while you're waiting. Yeah, the fact and the fact that I even had to tell you that annoys me. <laughs> right. When when yeah when would I ever say okay I want you to go off and do this hard task and while you're at it hang my UI would you right. please? <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and you look at at models programming models like uh, like Silverlight uh, don't even allow you to hang the UI everything right. that could possibly block in that programming model is asynchronous. Well because uh, that's I mean that's the only model that's actually acceptable. The only right. time that we get away with it is when we do it so quickly that you didn't realize we hung your UI exactly. <laughs> Well, we're really excited about all the stuff that you've been putting in the languages, and um, Rosalind sounds amazing. I know I have an application for it right now, so um, yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah, uh, Eric, what's the process to go from this future project of Rosalind into something will be a version number? Uh, well, that is black magic, uh, and I actually do not understand how that black magic works. All I know is that the release PMs go off into a room, and when they come back out, they have they mystically obtained uh, dates and code names, and you know, and they have these 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 Gantt charts in project. And I I do not know how all of that works. Are they and, bleeding after that meeting? But <laughs> they they often have this faraway look in their eyes uh. where. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's like they've uh, they've they've emerged from the matrix uh, right. and are are still uh, still a little bleary as a result. Yeah, no, I I have no idea what the the, the scheduling uh, how that scheduling process works, and frankly, I am glad to not know how that part <laughs> of the sausage is made. That's the sausage part that you don't want to deal with, <laughs> right? I appreciate that you guys just plain old declare a project. That is an interesting idea mm. that is completely independent of a, of a version or anything. So we could explore this idea. Right. And at some point it will transform into something else. Right. Now's the time to start thinking about how you're going to use that to, uh, yeah, to do something wonderful. Right. We very much want to get feedback from the community as early as possible. Because like I was saying before, one of the big, um, one of the big wins for this kind of technology is that it will enable 
better community involvement in the uh, the whole ecosystem of, of Visual Studio and, and .NET development. And so it would be foolish to spring that on people as a surprise, right? You know, we we want to find out right now what sort of scenarios people are envisioning, what, what sort of things they would use this tool for. Um, it's not a guarantee that, you know, everybody who comes to us with some crazy idea about how they would use a tool, you know, we're not necessarily going to do their pet feature. But we take all of those suggestions very seriously and, uh, and weigh them against uh, each other and against the, you know, the, the budget that we have available and, and whatnot in order to try to come up with something that's really great. Eric, it's been great talking to you this hour. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And keep on doing what you do. We love it. All right. Well, you guys keep on doing what you do, too. Well, we certainly will. Okay. All right. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a